Hey, everybody. This is Darren Friedman from Quill and Curtain Podcast, the podcast for playwrights by playwrights. And if you like the uh, podcast, please like it and subscribe. Today, we have Bob LeBlanc. Before I start reading his bio, you must understand he does a gazillion things. He is a brilliant, brilliant improv artist. He is an artist. He is an actor. But most of all, he is a playwright. So let me read through this. Robert J. LeBlanc is an award-winning playwright, actor, voice actor, and artist, as well as the producer, head writer, host, improviser, and designer of the comedy ensemble Balderdash Academy. He is also the owner of the interactive mystery comedy company, Sluice Mystery Entertainment. He writes in several genres with a focus on comedy and the use of comedy and drama, which we're going to talk about. His work can be found on stage, screen, and in various podcasts, including Balderdash Academy's On the Air. He is also the guest writer and guest series developer of Real.FM's undertow horror podcast so having said all of that welcome bob how are you i am exhausting to I, well is, are you impressed are, are you entertained by my bio of you i am i do way too much um <laughs> you're a busy yeah, man i from improv to game show writing uh, during the pandemic, I started a game show, celebrity comedy game show with my ensemble, to playwriting, to doing guest series work on Realm FM's Undertow from the brilliant Fred Greenhalge. Yeah, I, I have an interesting life, but it's a lot more satisfying to me than like real work. So, <laughs> who wants to do real work? I did. So, I have severe ADHD in real life, and my resume looks like a checklist. The one thing that I do and I know I'm good at and I know I succeed in is entertainment of some kind. So, mm -hmm. play to your strengths. And that's what I did. Well, okay, let's let's focus you in, even though you do everything. So I'm going to ask you a lot about a lot of things, but I, this is a podcast about playwriting. So what yeah. do you think drew you to playwriting, and when did you know it was your path? So since I was very young, I've been obsessed with stories of all kinds. And my first foray, if you look at the DNA of me as a playwright, it started in the 80s during the satanic panic, playing D&D &D in our friend's basement or really on the trails around the town I grew up in. Um, from there, that got me interested into stories in 89 in school. I took my first improv class and... Improv is effectively spontaneous playwriting. Um, it's not just that art form that you cringe at when you hear your friends asking to go see their college show. Um, from improv, I got into doing comedy videos, writing for comedy videos, accidentally landed in the theater. And uh, from there, my love of writing evolved into playwriting 
uh, wrote my first play when I was 12 years old for Mr. Norton, my English teacher. He's the real reason why I, uh, I considered writing in and of itself as a career path. He uh, assigned us uh, Chris Van Allsburg, The Mysteries of Harris Burdick, which if anybody's a writer, you need to pick up the book. It's absolutely brilliant. It's a title, the opening sentence, and an illustration. And the book challenges you to complete every story. So we did. And uh, from there, it was just playing around. I actually chose the play in that class because it was the fastest way to tell a story and I didn't trust myself as a writer. In high school, that's where it really took off. That's where I really fell in love with theater, storytelling, improv, and playwriting. And uh, the use of improv as a means to develop as a playwright. In my brain, they are all one craft expressed in different means. That's great. So when you categorize improv in terms of what you do with your troupe and what you do with actual writing, are there blurred lines or are they one and the same? So for me, they're one and the same. When I playwright, I'm improvising a show on paper, right? I'm yes-ending myself, agreeing with what I write down, seeing where it'll go, looking at the reality of the scene, trying to maintain the reality that I'm building on that page. I'm looking at associative realities. So if this is true, if what I wrote is true, then what else about these characters and this situation must also be true? I am giving myself permission to fail so that, I mean, I know if I mess up on page, future me, my effective scene partner, has my back and is always trying to make me look better than I am, just like when you're performing on stage with a, your regular improv group. Your job as a improviser is to listen and to make your scene partner look better than you. Agree with what they say and add to it. Build up that scene together. I do that same thing as a playwright. Granted, I'm doing it alone, but I'm still doing that as a playwright. The nice thing about that is when you work in that style, you kind of give yourself permission to be prolific because you only work until the scene's done. You work until the story's done. Now, whether that's a six-page, uh, six ten-minute play or a 120-page three-act, two-act, it doesn't matter. It's all the same process. It's exploring and seeing where the plot leads you, where the characters lead you, taking a look at the story from their perspectives and what they would really do in that situation justifying their decisions and explaining not only to your audience, but to yourself, why did they make that decision? And ultimately leading it on so that you yourself can be surprised by the ending, just like the audience can. It is playwriting as a spectator rather than a conductor. What do you think inspires your plays when you write them? And here's another part of this question. 
-hmm. where do you find the characters and then the stories that help you do that? So it depends on the product. And let me explain. So I'm a commercial playwright. I'm hired by companies to create plays for them. Um, in the uh, in the case of the mysteries for my mystery company, if I get hired to do a custom show, they usually come with requirements. So I need a certain number of actors, certain number of genders, certain number of age ranges. The set pieces need to be uh, need to match wherever it's being performed. So I have to write around a certain location. And those limitations presented in that manner are opportunities for creativity. Creativity is nothing more than problem solving. So it gives me an opportunity to take a look at those requirements and see how I can challenge myself while still delivering a product that they're proud of and they want to perform. When it comes to my art shows, any show that I write for me and not for a client, what I'm looking for is something that's going to maintain my attention throughout the entire process. Whether that's, um, yes, ending my way into a problem and then seeing how my characters get out of it, to twists that catch me off guard as much as the audience, but are still justified by this by the show. Um, pattern recognition through, I'm lucky I'm a playwright with ADHD, so I have that pattern recognition ability to notice when I accidentally just foreshadowed an event. So I, I guess the short answer to the long answer is... It's uh, it, it really de depends on the, the product and how I'm writing it, what I'm writing it for. I love writing and I'm prolific. Uh, I finish a couple of plays a week and I don't limit myself writing just on the keyboard. So if I'm out for a walk or if I'm driving into another show, driving to rehearsal and a story hits me, I'll pull out my cell phone, my voice recorder, the, the recorder on my watch, and I will improvise the show while I'm on my drive there. Or I will improvise the show while walking, which I would love to pull beside me in the car and see what that actually looks like, but it works for me. I always take opportunities to, um, to create. If the opportunity exists, I'll take it. And it sounds like no matter what you're doing, whether it's art or design or your improv, you're always creating something. Yeah. Yeah. I'm lucky. I See, because my resume used to look like a checklist, I had hundreds of jobs. Um, I've worked in call centers. It was soul crushing. I worked in finance and it was, it was it, it, making me depressed. One of the jokes I always say is creativity in art is an asset and creativity in finance is a felony. <laughs> so I, I needed to find a career that would, would allow me to create. Um, and I always had that. My day jobs have always been not always. My day jobs have mostly been creatively 
uh, creative based, either as a designer, as a writer, as an actor, sculptor, uh, stunt performer in, uh, um, when I was younger, I used to do, uh, a lot of weapon, weapon stunts, like live steel, uh, Renfair type stuff. And, um, it's always been creative. I, I was horrible at being an adult is really what it came down to. People would ask me, you know, well, what are you going to be when you grow up? I'm like, ah, I'm going to be an actor. And they always said, well, no, no, no. You, you need something to fall back on. And they're like, I'm like, oh, yeah, they're right. I'll be a writer. You chose playwriting as your backup? Yeah. And then they're like, no, 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 no. You got you to gotta have something else. Like acting, playwriting, you need something to fall back on. And I'm like, you're right. So I went to art school. I'm bad at being an adult. <laughs> Sounds like it. So what do you, let's talk about that for a second. What do you think as a playwright, not as the other hats that you wear, but as a playwright yeah, specifically, uh, what do you think the challenges you face right now are and are the rewards that you get from them worth the, uh, the sweat? And talk about the rewards that you've received because you're, yes, you are prolific and you get your work done in a lot of places, including Australia, which yeah, is I've been crazy. Produced, I've been produced worldwide. Yeah. Um, which is cool. It's really surreal. Um, so I, I work in a very niche industry. I work in mystery and I work in interactive mystery and Part of what that requires is writing a lot of shows very quickly for specific clients or modifying existing shows so they'll work for a particular group or writing shows that are universal and preferably timeless. Um, and I have been incredibly lucky where people have a tendency to look for exactly what I have. And that's been helpful. I mean, I, I don't sell a lot of my shows by networking or reaching out. I, well, all of the shows that were produced last year were produced from people contacting me to do them. Um, very passive. I have them on my webpage. People can find them if they want to find them. They contact me. I send them my, my rates and they get a discount if they do more than one night. And, uh, usually they'll go for the cheaper option and do three or four nights. And that's worldwide from Ohio, California, Louisiana, Minnesota, uh, Near Perth, Australia. I have two companies in uh, Western Australia producing right now. Um, yeah, it, I'm lucky enough to know what I have and to know how rare an opportunity this is. So I, I don't try to squander it. My challenge in it, of it all is constantly creating new products, new shows for the companies to produce. Uh, that requires me, me writing a lot of full-length plays a year just to keep my catalog up. 
I also do a lot of custom shows, so it requires me writing shows that I will never be able to sell outside of that one time for that one client. My challenge right now is really finding the time to do non-mystery work that I'm passionate about. Uh, I have a tendency to, to fill the void, so to speak, so downtime, I don't know how to deal with it, so I react by creating another project. Mm -hmm. Last year, I wrote 16 90-minute original comedy radio shows every uh, so 16 over the course of the year. Um, we never did a single show more than once. Um, each radio show had a connected through plot and multiple vintage style series that we performed live with a live Foley artist. Uh, like that's the type of stuff that, that attracts me, that risk, risk and reward. The challenge is finding the time to keep that pace. Finding the time to do the writing, to uh, coming up with the stories, the ideas that I, that doesn't bother me. When, when you're a working playwright or when you're a working artist in any field, you don't wait for inspiration. Um, inspiration comes from the work. So you just sit down, you just start. And you see where it goes. Eventually, you'll find the story. So, yeah, my challenge is time and brevity, as you can see. <laughs> no, that's okay. I want you to talk. So if you're going to give advice, one of the things that uh, I love about you, and there are a lot of things I love about you, but you're very willing to give advice to people who need it. Uh mm -hmm for a lot of different um, aspects of what being a playwright is. And I've always been fascinated with your ability to have this kind of general knowledge. Um, so I would ask you if you could kind of give somebody an aspiring playwright or even the more experienced playwrights as well, um, kind of your universal advice checklist of the do's and don'ts of what to get involved with so they are as productive as possible. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. So my advice to any playwright is right. Um, you're only as good as your most honest critique. So look for people you trust to review your work. If that's what you need to get better. Um, I always tell playwrights to find what works for them. Uh, writing every day is the one advice that most people will hear. And writing every day doesn't necessarily work for any for everyone. Unless you are getting paid to sit down and work on a piece of art for another client, Writing every day is an easy way to burn yourself out. Um, if you can sit and write every day, sit and write every day. If you need to sit around and wait to be inspired to do your best work, then that's the type of playwright you are, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's okay to find your own way. Um, one of the advices that I tend to give 
playwrights who submit to festivals is a rejection isn't a rejection of you. A rejection is usually your artwork did not fit what they were looking for this year. I don't get down from rejections. Rejections really don't bother me. Um, most of the time I get a rejection, I have to check a spreadsheet to see whether or not I actually submitted to them. Um, if you focus on... And so as a playwright, you tend to see what you're looking for. So if, if you're looking for a reason, an excuse not to do it or an excuse that you're bad, you'll find it. But if you're looking in, uh, for an excuse, a reason to create, just to create, and a reason to write because you love the process and you love your characters and you love the discovery of the art, then write. You'll, you'll find what you look for. So I have a ton of advice. So my whole thing with playwriting is to tear down the barriers that I had when I started 34 years ago, 35 years ago. There were so many people who are threatened by others. There are so many people who are threatened by other playwright success. And I don't buy it. Your success is not my failure. Your success is an opportunity for me to see a friend succeed, to cheer on somebody I care about for work that has touched me. How is that bad? If I don't get into a festival, but Dana or John or Scott or DC does, that's me celebrating their win, not my loss. And I think that's important. And I don't think that's a Pollyanna attitude either. I, I believe that if we work to tear down the barriers that existed for us when we got into the art, and we work to answer questions from new playwrights and to celebrate their successes and to commiserate them and their losses, then that community that's your support group. That community is what's going to buoy you through those dark times. Through the times where you, you are stuck and don't know what to write. Or if you let a rejection get to you, which is human. Me, I, I've been doing it long enough where it doesn't bother me, but I'm not, that's not saying it never did. I have a tendency to take negative reviews and, and promote them because I think it's hilarious but it's also a defense mechanism because it hurts. And I'm that's going to ask okay. you a question. Yeah. There's a question that I always ask at the end of these things, but I'm going to ask you right now. Tell me the funniest rejection story you've ever experienced. Uh, ooh. That's a tough one. Um, most rejections, I just brush off. They don't bother. Oh, I have one. I have one. Um, not necessarily playwriting, but as playwright adjacent. I had, uh, I pitched a show to a client 
and um, I gave him the quote for the price, what it would cost to write them a, a new show, how much it would cost to bring in performers if they didn't want to do it themselves. We're talking a very niche industry, so this is kind of the Norman times. A norm at times, not the Norman times. That was the 1100s. Um, and uh, they they were, were polite, but they were they were not as receptive as I would have liked. And typically I would just let it slide, let it pass. But I had, uh, I had high hopes for it. I thought it went well, but it, I don't think it went as well as I thought. Uh, didn't hear anything from them for about a week and a half, two weeks. Uh, I then get an email. They'd obviously forgotten I was the one they talked to, but they quoted what I quoted them, but elevated it. And uh, reached out to me to see that if I could, asking me if I could beat this other company's offer. So they came <laughs> back to you. me. <laughs> they came back to me to have me beat my own quote that they elevated. So I said, sure. And because they elevated the quote, I gave them my original quote. I mean, they still rejected it, but yeah, that's probably the weirdest. That's or, I great. Guess, that's a great story. I don't have bad ones because I don't, They a rejection doesn't matter. Right? Like a show's either going to work or it's not going to work. Somebody's going to produce it or it's just going to sit there. My work kind of ended when I finished the show. Like, I know how it ends. I, uh, It's great if they're produced. I mean, that's nice. But there's a lot of shows I write and never submit. There's I've like 200 shows plus sitting on a hard drive that I'll likely never look at again. But they're done. They're out of my head. I got to experience the story. Yeah. There's a question that I wanted to ask you specifically because it's a lot of the work that you've been doing since COVID. Uh, uh, the digital distribution of media. Yeah. And your, and well, we can talk about your work specifically, but as a playwright, uh, their role or the experiences they can have with it, what do you see as um, the potential? of the digital experience and the playwriting experience. So COVID proved that it didn't matter how bad the word world got, theater would persist. World shut down. We were told not to get near each other. And we all came together online. Like I created a playwriting group online during the pandemic, uh, Playwright Connection. Um, kind of as a means to get us together and to build each other up and also to act as a support group while we're going through that hard time. And it, it eventually evolved into what it is today. Um, digital media is an opportunity. It's a dangerous opportunity, depending on how you use it. But it's an opportunity for a playwright to gain more control over the production of their work, if that's what they like. Um, or it gives him an opportunity to take a look at a new medium to write for. Since the advent of podcasts 
and now that podcasts have got, grown out of their adolescence into adulthood as as uh, somewhat legitimate legitimate that's a weird word to say when you're tired uh, somewhat legitimate um, art form you're seeing a lot of playwrights and a lot of playwright producers create their own audio dramas right you have uh, Joe Swenson with his Broken Arts Entertainment you have uh, Rachel Feeney Williams with theatrical shenanigans and of course Jonathan Cook with Gather by the Ghostlight. All absolutely brilliant. By taking your work and producing it as an audio play, it allows you to actually start writing in that medium. If you look at a lot of the work that I've done in the last year, two years, three years, a lot of it is audio-based. It's written specifically for the audio format. Uh, to the point where... I've had people uh, reach out to me and ask whether they could produce my audio plays as a stage play. And I was taken aback because I did not ever consider it for a staged show. In my brain, it was always in hand in front of a microphone. And uh, it introduces a slew of new opportunities that playwrights haven't had since the 50s. It's exciting. It's like with improv. You can do anything you want. You can have any prop in the world. You have an unlimited budget for a set because it's all in your mind. And that's the same thing with audio. Anything you want to write or show or have your characters do, you can in audio. Can't do it on stage can't afford to do it in film it's freedom there's a freedom there what do you think the future not necessarily of theater but let's say theater and playwrights involvement in theater what do you, where's the future going where where is that is it digital in your mind or is there opportunity for traditional as well the opportunity for traditional is it's where I started. It's where I wanted to go. Things need to change in the current theatrical landscape. There are too many theater companies barely getting by. They're choosing to do tentpole shows just to try to keep their doors open. They're ignoring, not ignoring, they're forced to ignore a lot of the brilliance that exists in unproduced playwrights. They're, they don't have the freedom to take the risk that they should have. You know, they called it, what was it, the Disneyfication of Broadway? Okay. And it's spread out. You see that now. All community theaters are doing something junior. Or mm -hmm. they're doing a Disney show. Or they're doing... They're doing a massive musical. And because of that, there's a lot of brilliant shows that aren't getting produced that there are audiences for. Um, I'd like to see traditional theater go into a more accessible model. Up near me, there's Mad Horse Playhouse in Portland. Absolutely brilliant ensemble. And they move to a pay-what-you-can model. 
you pay after the show. You pay after you see it. You can pay beforehand. Um, or you can't, you don't pay at all. And whenever I go see a show, if they ask me, like if they give me a suggestion, I'll pay a lot more than that. Especially if I like what they're doing, because I, I, I want to support them. You give me a ticket price, I'm just going to pay the ticket price. I don't think there's a big difference between digital and live when it comes to the playwright. To the actors, there definitely is. To the accessibility of production, there is. But take a look at somebody like Chris Plumbridge, right? Chris mm -hmm. is absolutely brilliant. His Bear series, I love. And uh, you can go online on YouTube right now and watch it as a cartoon, as an animation. His play. I would love to see more of that. I would love to see the arts come together to support each other. You know, one of the things that draws me to theater is the fact that it's collaborative. It can only exist in collaboration. My shows cannot exist without a director to translate them. My characters can't exist without actors to justify my random whims and find meanings to their characters' lives that I didn't know I intended. And even after that, our shows, mine, the director, the actors, cannot exist without the audience. It's straight collaboration. I would love to see that collaboration move into other art forms. There's not a big difference between writing a play and writing a graphic novel. There's not a lot of difference between writing a play and writing a radio show, writing a radio play, writing an audio movie. They're all adjacent to each other. It'd be awesome to see that collaboration come together and push the art form into new realms. I don't think it's going what? anywhere. Right. I agree. If you're going to look at what you've done and what you're doing right now, mm -hmm. what do you think you're most proud of and excited about? So when it comes to my current body of work, I, I think I'm most proud of the radio shows I did last year. Um, they were a lot of fun. I proved that I could write with help. I had a co-writer, the great David Hanwright, um, wrote one show for every night. So I do usually did uh, 60 minutes. He usually did 20 minutes. And then I did the, the between performance, the through show. Um, those series, just pounding out a series, three or four episodes sometimes a day, was exhilarating. That was a lot of fun. I, I'm proud of hitting the style, getting that 1930s, 1940s, or 1950s radio play style down. Um, 
but in general, I, I tend not to be proud of the work that I do in writing or even performing. Um, I don't take compliments well. That includes compliments from myself to myself. Um, what I'm most proud of in the art form is um, I'm really proud of what we've accomplished with the Playwright Connection. Um, I came up with the concept, but it is by no means my group. Uh, Dana Hall is an admin. Um, Rachel's an admin. Vivian's an admin. It's, it is run by its members. Everything that we do is voted upon. If it, if it changes the rules of the group, it's voted upon. Um, it's a safe space online, a rare safe space in, uh, I would and like to add, it is, an, it is an amazing, I have found it to be my digital home. I yeah. haven't found a more safe and supportive group of peers. And the people I have met through the Playwright Connection have played a significant role in the last eight months I've been on there. And I, I'm just so grateful for it. Well, I'm happy to hear that. It, I, it, it, I, the whole idea behind it was as a support group. I mean, our prime rule is Will Wheaton's law. Don't be a dick. Just be kind to one another. You know, try to be the person you most needed on the day of your worst rejection. And it, it really has blossomed and grown into that we we have people new to playwriting never done it before want to get into the art come into the group and ask a question as simple as okay how do i get started and you don't have your typical slew of vitriol well uh, nobody told me how to start like that doesn't exist in the group people will just tell you well, I took my Playwriting 101 class's uh, asset sheet. Everything they need to know, all the formats they need, all the software links they need, which the trick to new playwrights, you don't need any software. Grab a pen and a pad of paper, you're a playwright. And I put it online for free in the group for them. Like, it's the, the fact that, that we have almost 5,000 members who kind of believe to tear down those gates and to lift each other up is it's amazing to me. I'd like and to it, add something. Sure. There, and I don't mean to, to interrupt you, but oh, Trip, please, had, you're the host of the show. I've been talking no, straight okay. for 40 minutes. I, I had a really, really bad day in September, Labor Day weekend. Mm -hmm. It was about as bad a day as I've ever had in my professional life. And I'm including playwriting as my professional life. Yeah, of course. It took me about two weeks to have enough courage to write the story on the Playwright Connection wall. I received 146 comments of the most beautiful 
heartfelt support you could possibly imagine. And from that day on, I realized there was nothing I wouldn't do for the people of that, that Facebook page, that group. Mm. And um, it just meant the world to me. It meant the world to me. Okay. So one more <laughs> question for you. One more, right. one more question for you. In 60 seconds or less, what do you think somebody needs to do tomorrow that they can take an action step towards being the playwright that could of, of their potential? So the, the main thing to do is write, write a show and give yourself permission to fail. Trust future you to come in and save it. If you get stuck, write your way around it. If it doesn't work, just cut that part. That's all. It's not really a big secret. It's, it's okay to do bad work. Not every show Bob, is going to be wonderful, but at the end you, of the show, brilliant. you're done. Ah, you're brilliant, man. I love having you. We're going to have you on again because this is awesome. We need a part well, two. I don't know. I, no, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. Um, this is uh, Bob LeBlanc. He's amazing. He's brilliant. And you can find him on the Playwright Connection on Facebook. And do you want to plug a website, a main website? Uh, sure. Uh, you can find what I do online at balderdashacademy.com or sleuthsmystery.com. And uh, as one big, one big place that I want all playwrights to go and check out is New Play Exchange. If you're looking to find work, really undiscovered work from brilliant playwrights. New Play Exchange is amazing. It, go get a membership. The membership is cheaper than most Starbucks coffee. Like their the annual year. membership, I think it, is it's $10. $10 a year. Yeah. Um, and you have unlimited access to some amazing shows. Read them. If they touch you, recommend them online brilliant i absolutely love new play exchange so yeah if yeah, i'm going to pitch if i'm going to promote a website new play exchange that's great <laughs> okay bob leblanc today's episode was brought to you by point park university's low res mfa program and writing for stage and screen the low res means it is online except for two weeks a summer a year it is a two-year program. I graduated from it. It's an amazing program. Um, again, Point Park University in Pittsburgh, and uh, I definitely suggest you hit it up. Again, thank you so much for joining us and uh, for the Quill and Curtain podcast. And uh, leave a comment, subscribe, rate it, do all the things, do all the things, and let us know what we can do to make the show better. Bob, thanks for coming on, man. Oh, thank you.